series on the Sermon on the Mount, the Upside Down Kingdom. If you want to know where in the scripture the sermon is found, it's found in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5 through verse 7. This morning, God helping us, I want to speak to you on the theme of kingdom entrance requirements. Did you know that God requires something of those who want to be part of the kingdom of heaven? And we have a terrible tendency sometimes as Christians where we water down the gospel. And so we take one little verse that says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And we say, Yes. And I know that's in God's word, but... Scripture needs to interpret Scripture, and we need to understand the whole scope of what God says concerning salvation. Because the Scripture doesn't only say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, but when we take a closer look at the demands of the gospel, we see that Jesus also said, and we're going to be studying this passage when we get to chapter 7, enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the way that leads to life and only few there be who find it. So you know, the Sermon on the Mount really challenges us to what I've called red-letter Christian living. How seriously do we take what Jesus had to say as it is recorded in the Word of God? And this morning, we want to see how Jesus raises the bar as we read in our text this morning from Matthew chapter 5. We'll begin our reading in verse 19 and through verse 22. And so Jesus says, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow, did he ever raise the bar. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Lord, I pray today that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to us. Those of us who desire to live and walk as kingdom disciples. Those of us who take you at your word. Those of us who are red letter Christians we, because we believe that what you said, Jesus, becomes the standard by which we are to live our lives. 
So Holy Spirit, teach us, anoint us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, amen. Well, the last we were together, we were looking at this passage of Scripture where Jesus speaks about his relationship to the law. And he says very, very plainly that I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus himself, Jesus himself is the veritable fulfillment of everything that Moses and the prophets spoke concerning the coming Messiah. And Jesus is so adamant about that reality that he says that even the tiniest detail of God's word will never, ever be lost. Yes, heaven and earth is going to pass away, but my word shall never pass away. And so what does that tell us this morning? It tells us that Jesus did not only endorse everything that was spoken in the Old Testament as a thought, oh, that's a nice concept, but Jesus said not even the least jot or tittle, the smallest stroke of an apostrophe, that word is the inspired word of God. Even though we know Moses was the instrument by which it was written, it, did not, it just came through Moses as the pen. The words were God's words. And as such, they are not to be treated lightly. They are God-breathed. That's what Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3 and 16. All Scripture... From Genesis 1-1 through the end of the book of Revelation, all scripture, whether you like that scripture or not, whether it suits your fancy or not, all scripture is God-breathed. It comes from the mouth of God. And that's why the Bible tells us that we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth, proceedeth from the mouth of God. This reality should both encourage us because what God says in his word, you could take it to the bank. It's true. What God says in his word, regardless of what your circumstances may dictate, has nothing to do with it because God's word is true. Let every man be a liar, but let the word of the Lord stand. For heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will never pass away. And the word of God says that he has even honored his word above his very name. So it should encourage us because there are promises that we cling to. There are truths that we lay hold of that we need to see the fulfillment of them in our lives. You can be sure if God said it, it is true and it will come to pass. But it should also challenge us. That there is nothing in God's word that we are to overlook. There's nothing in God's word that we are to water down. This should give us great pause because we are living in a time and a day when people are trying to tell you what God's word says and there are all of these different translations and paraphrases that are rolling off of the presses. Do you know our Jehovah Witness friends? are so blinded by the truth because they're reading the New World Translation that just changes one little word that changes the whole meaning 
And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. That's what the New World Translation says. They insert that little article A and it changes the entire meaning. It strips Jesus of his deity as the son of the living God. So we need to be careful that if we are going to be students of the word, that words matter. You can't read the New World Translation and embrace that because words matter. Jesus was not a God. He is, was, and shall forever be the eternal Son of the living God. And that reminds me on another note that there are those who would like to say today, well, I, I read the Gospels and Jesus never spoke about that sin. Any of you ever hear that? I never heard those words come out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. But do we understand in the verses that we have just read in Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus validates everything that was written in the Old Testament. That not one jot, one tittle will pass away. It is true forever. And God's Moral laws, and we've spoken about this, there are the ceremonial laws, there are ritualistic laws that we're living in a new covenant, so we're not bound by those laws. But God's moral laws that pertain to holiness of life, they are unchanging, they are binding, they are non-negotiable truths of God's word. And regardless of whatever the secularist would like to teach us today, concern, well, God really never meant that. Yes, he did. If, he, if it is in the Old Testament, you can't find it in the New, it's there. And all scripture is God-breathed. And so we need to take God's word as it is spoken to us and not think that we could rationalize it away, whitewash it, discount it. You know, there are those who say, well, I, I just read the parts of the Bible that I like. In fact, there are scriptures that now have been rewritten where anything that disagrees with the carnal nature, the sin nature, those are taken out because they don't want people to feel uncomfortable about what the scripture requires. But Jesus does not take such a flippant attitude toward that. What does he warn in verse 19? Wherefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, your name may not be Billy Graham, but as far as God is concerned, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, then you do what God's word says exactly as it says it, and then you teach God's word exactly as it is written. And I know that so many think, well, that's the pastor's job. That's the Sunday school teacher's job. Do you know, moms and dads, you have responsibility? For God says in his word in Deuteronomy, these words I am commanding you today are to be upon your hearts. When I read that, I just had to stop and pause for a moment. 
God, you are expecting that this word that I read in my daily devotions is not something that I do as a part of a religious formality or ritual and say, oh, okay, I, I read my three chapters today and then forget about what I've read. But this word that the Spirit of God would breathe into your spirit as God's truth and God's message and God's personal revelation to you is something that we are to take upon our hearts. And when something is in our heart, what do we do? We meditate upon it. We brood over it. We consider it. And as disciples, we certainly pray into it as well. God, make this truth part and parcel of my life. And then he says, and you shall teach them how flippantly, irrationally, haphazardly, oh, if I get to it, no, teach them diligently to your children and speak of them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Can I just paraphrase that? That in every activity of every day, the word of God is to have priority in our lives and it's the message that we are to be challenging even our children with. If we think the church is going to do what needs to be done in the hearts and the lives of our children once a week, we're sadly mistaken. If kids do not hear the word of God at home, by the mouths of their parents, by their father who's to be the priest of the home, by their mother who loves God's word, who, who like Lois and Eunice, Paul said of Timothy, was what gave him that spiritual foundation that he needed. And so also do our children. And so in this extended uh, section of scripture, Jesus makes this shocking statement. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. Now that had to be such a shocking statement as Jesus is speaking about the law and uh, when he's talking about this, you know what they're thinking? Oh, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they're the doctors of the law they they have their phd they are the ones who've studied it from cover to cover they are the ones who spend their days their moments their hours they're constantly in these first five books of the law reading and studying and meditating what does it mean what is it saying how do i apply it to my life and then jesus comes out and says wait a minute except your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. See, they were the all-star team. They took the law and they fulfilled it in every which way that they could. I know so often we think that the Pharisees were the bad guys. Well, they, I know they were because Jesus constantly condemned them and he called them bad because of how they misconstrued the scripture and how they applied the scripture in ways that the scripture was never ever intended. But the reality is as far as what they believed about themselves, they were the back to the Bible movement. Hey, Israelites, you, you, this is what Moses says. This is how you need to live your life. 
And what happened is they not only took the law of Moses, but then as the learned intelligentsia of the day, they decided that they were going to interpret it and apply it. And that's where they went wrong because then they fell into religious tradition and rituals and the word of God was added to and misinterpreted and misapplied. And so we have the Torah, which is the five books of Moses' law, but equally sacred in the mind of the Jewish people is the Talmud. What's the Talmud? It's what the rabbis had to say about the scripture. That wasn't God-breathed. That was out of their own mind. It was out of their own heart. It was out of what their own study produced. But then it was embraced as this is the law of God. Jesus says you've got it all wrong because they were so focused on the letter of the law instead of the spirit of the law. And Jesus says, I'm not impressed with their righteousness. If you want to be part of the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now here, here's an example of how excessive the scribes and the Pharisees were. Did, did you know that they were dubbed with the name the head bump Pharisees? Or the black eye Pharisees? Can, can you imagine why they were given that name? Do you know why they were given that name? Because they were so scrupulous about keeping the law of God and making sure that they did not fail that when they were walking down the street and if they saw a woman out of the corner of their eye, they would cover their eyes because God forbid they did not want to lust. And so in covering their eyes, they would bang into walls and get black eyes. And so they were called head bump Pharisees and black eye Pharisees. God is wanting them to see and to know that again, it is not the letter of the law, it is the spirit of the law and it is a matter of the heart. That's what they did not understand. It was a matter of the heart. And so beginning in verse 22, there's this extended passage that goes through chapter five all the way to verse 38 where Jesus is going to deal with these different areas where the law was not rightly interpreted where it was not rightly taught by the Jewish religious leaders. And this morning we really only have time to cover the first one where Jesus says in verse 21, you have heard it said, stop and think about that for a moment. You have heard it said. See, sometimes we embrace a belief system that we've heard it said. But have we heard Jesus, by the Spirit, speak that word to our hearts? See, in Jesus' day, the scripture was not readily available. If you wanted to read the scripture, you had to go in the synagogue and ask for the scroll to be opened so that you could read the word of God. Isn't it sad today that there are Bibles on every nightstand? And yet, there are so many Christians that never open them. They wait for Oh, I'm going to church Sunday morning. The pastor's going to preach, and that's when I will hear the word of the Lord. But God's intent is for us to read the word for ourselves and not to depend on others. And I know it's a blessing. There is no one who loves good preaching more than I do. And one of my favorite things to do, and what actually motivates me to get out and walk five o'clock in the morning 
is that I could listen to great preaching. I, I love listening to great preaching, but that is of little value if that great preaching does not become a word from heaven to my own heart that I am able to apply, that I am able to be convicted by, that I am able to be challenged by, that my life changes because that's what the word of God is all about, bringing change and transformation into our lives. So we need the word for ourselves and we need the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. So Jesus said, you have heard that it was said by those of old. See, the, the rabbis and the religious leaders took the law of Moses and then they added their spin and their twist to it. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now, we're all familiar with the sixth commandment, are we not? Thou shalt not murder. God forbids murder. We all agree on that. But it's really interesting that there are some quote, Christians who believe that if God says thou shalt not kill, then capital punishment is wrong. And therefore they will object to participating in wars as conscientious objectors because as part of their belief, the Bible says you cannot kill, so I can't go into battle and kill. But that is a gross misinterpretation of the scripture because there are actually two words for this uh, loss of life that we're speaking of here. One is killing and one is murder. And while the King James Version has thou shalt not kill, if you study other translations of the Bible, by and large, most of them will say thou shalt not murder. Do we know that God actually instituted Capital punishment? I know that might rub some people the wrong way. But there are actually 36 different offenses that are identified in the Old Testament as worthy of capital punishment. Things like idolatry, magic. You're caught with a Ouija board, you were stoned. You were caught with a horoscope, you were stoned. Blasphemy, of course sexual sin, child sacrifice just think of how many who've committed abortions would would be stoned because god doesn't tolerate the sacrifice of innocent children there were even sins as you disrespect your parent you deserve to be stoned god places such a value on respect and honor given to parents and so he himself instituted that and you might say well pastor that's the old testament where in the new testament does it say that well let's look at romans 13 and verse 4 for he is god's minister to you for good but if you do evil be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is god's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Do you know why for ages America has been such a blessed and a wonderfully safe and happy place to live? Because we believed what God said in his word. 
And God says that I give the authorities the power to execute those who do evil if it's proven that they are guilty of doing evil. And now we're living in a day and age where the most evil of people are being exonerated, are not even being imprisoned. They're just being justified and, oh, you're fine. And then they go out and commit even more crimes. And we're supposed to be happy about that. And the police are the bad guys. And those who uphold the law are the evil ones. We're living in an upside-down world, Christian friends. And oh, would to God that we would pray that America could be restored to its roots of righteous and holy living that is according to the word of God, walking in the fear of God, knowing that if we do evil, we will be punished for that evil because that is what God prescribes in his word. I don't want to get off a theme or subject here, but Jesus gives this commandment and then says, I want you to understand that that's what you've heard. Don't murder. But I say unto you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not in any wise inherit the kingdom of heaven. What were the Jewish leaders telling them? They were telling them, just so long as you don't take a knife and stab them, you fulfilled the sixth commandment. You didn't murder them. Isn't that great? You could pat yourself on the shoulder. But it, by the same token, you could harbor all kinds of anger, hatred, bitterness in your heart. Do that all that you want, but just don't take a knife or a gun and kill them. Don't do them any physical harm. You've met the law's requirements. So you know what that means? Now I have a license to destroy someone's reputation. I can speak evil against them all that I want because that's how the Jewish leaders of the day interpreted the word of God. But Jesus comes on the scene and he says, but I say unto you. You know what Jesus was doing? He's saying, you're going by these scribes and Pharisees who set themselves up as being closest to God, but their hearts are so far from me. I, the son of the living God, who is himself the living word, I say unto you. Do you know what Christendom in the 21st century is lacking? It's lacking hearing the voice of the spirit of God that is saying to our hearts today, but I say unto you. I believe that so many of us are living our lives today with this idea that I'm justified in feeling the way I do. I'm rightfully angry with that person. But if you're a real disciple of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God is saying, but I say unto you. Yes, it's true. The Scripture says do not murder, but Jesus says that's not the only thing that will bring you into judgment because while you feel that the law's limitations have already been defined, look at verse 22, but I say unto you, whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. 
What's Jesus saying here? He's saying that the law of God's kingdom is not only a law against murdering, but it's a law against staying angry with someone. We're New Testament disciples, are we not? What does the scripture say? Do not let the sun go down upon your wrath. Why does it say that? Because the anger of man never produces the righteousness of God. You say, oh, I, I, I want to be a good Christian. I, I want to live a righteous and holy life. Well, do you allow anger to linger? Do you stew in the offense that has come against you? That just the thought of that person just stirs up such a feeling of animosity and hostility and enmity. Oh, just, just the thought of them disgusts me. Jesus says, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. You know, as I thought about this passage of Scripture, it made me realize something, that I've been a murderer. And I think all of us in this house, if we would really, really, really be honest with ourselves, that according to the standard of what Jesus, the red letter edition of the word of God, something that we gloss over, something that we whitewash, something that we justify, something that we're just so self-righteous about how we feel and how we believe, God says, you're a murderer. In my sight, you're a murderer because murder begins in the heart and it begins with this anger. It begins with this anger that takes offense against what was done against you and that anger then becomes a bitterness that, oh, I just wish the worst on them because they deserve it after what they did to me. That's not the heart of Jesus. That's not the heart of the gospel. Entrance requirements in the kingdom means God isn't going to disregard a heart that is hatred, that has anger, that has bitterness, that has hostility. And so Jesus further elaborates and he says, and whoever says to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. And so what is Jesus doing here? He's exposing the essence of the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees. They think it's only a matter of external performance and not the heart, but Jesus brings it right back to the matter of the heart. Murder begins with anger. And we need to understand it's this anger that broods, this anger that doesn't forget, this anger that refuses to be pacified, this anger that seeks for revenge. Jesus says, you can't be my disciple if you're going to harbor and hold on to that kind of habitual anger and hostility. I know that there are times in our lives, and we're all human, that offense comes. But Jesus tells us how to deal with that offense and not to let the sun go down upon our wrath because if we do, then we become ignorant of the devices of Satan. His strategies, his schemes are so subtle he knows if he can trip us up in this way, he has us and he will rob us of the blessing of living in the fullness 
of what God has for us as kingdom disciples. We might comfort ourselves by saying, well, I never took a knife to them. I never took a gun to their head. But Jesus is saying, if you've premeditated anger where it now enters your mind, it enters your heart and begins to live there, then you have the heart of a murderer. Raka. What does that mean? It's almost an untranslatable word from the Aramaic language and it describes really a tone of voice more than actual words. But it's a tone of voice that speaks with such contempt and bitterness and hatred. It's like saying you nitwit, you blockhead, you numbskull, you bonehead, you brainless idiot. God is saying that's a person that I created and furthermore, it's a person that I loved so much that I died on the cross for and yet you've set yourself up in a place and a position that you feel you now have the right to pass that kind of contemptible speech and, and, and evaluation of who they are. God says you're, you're opening the door for my judgment to come against you. So how do, how do we deal with this? Well, in verses 23 through 26, Jesus makes it very, very plain. He says, therefore, and he paints two different scenarios. One is worship and the other is a legal matter. And in the first, he says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and remember that your brother is something against you, leave your gift there before the altar. Go your way first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And then in the second scenario, it says, agree with your adversary quickly while you're on your way. You're on your way to court, but do you really want to go to court? Do you really want to get sued? On your way, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer, you, you'll be thrown into prison, certainly I say to you, you'll be, you will by no means get out of there until you've paid the last penny. What's Jesus saying? There, there's a real high price to pay for holding on to unforgiveness, for not desiring to find reconciliation and peace. And so Jesus says, in the first example, you've come to church and Lord, I've come with a heart to worship you. I want to bring the sacrifice of praise. But while you're preparing to do that, in an instant, the Holy Spirit reminds you that someone has something against you. Now think about this, because I know we always hear that if you hold something against your brother, you have a responsibility to go and make it right. But do you hear what Jesus is saying here? If you're reminded that someone has something against you, you don't have it against them, they have it against you. Are you exonerated? I know what we say, that's their problem. My heart is right, my heart is pure, I don't hate them. I don't despise them. 
kingdom, disciples, you have a responsibility. I have a responsibility to go to that brother. Understanding what anger can do to them. How their bitterness toward me is causing them to fall into a pit of sin and unhappiness and unhealthfulness. As a believer, I now have the responsibility and go to them and say, I know I've offended you and I'm sorry. How can I make this right? If we fail to do that, then we're complicit. And I know that that's easier said than done. Because the reality is, Paul tells us this in Romans on chapter 12 and verse 18. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes that person will want to hold on to their bitterness and their anger and their hatred and their hostility. They're damning their own souls. But at least we've done our part. We've gone to them. We've asked for their forgiveness. We've asked to make it right. God says then, if they refuse, that's on them. Your heart is right. You've humbled yourself before your brother and sister and have done whatever it took to make it right. So as we close this morning, I just want to underscore this point. It's the heart of how we deal with one another. Before God, that is so huge and our wicked hearts are so good. We're, we're just brilliant at this, at holding on to our anger. Oh, it's not at a high boil now. Now it's just simmering. And it's been simmering for years. And we're allowing it to simmer when all at the same time it is creating spiritual devastation. And God is saying, you have a murderous heart. And you're, you're not exempt because the scripture says, you shall not kill. And yet by holding on to this anger, holding on to this bitterness, holding on to these attitudes, See, it's, it's, it's something that addresses the attitude. It's something that addresses our feeling. It's something that addresses all that we are. God is looking deep, deep into us. We gloss over those things. But when we stand before the Lord, we're going to stand before the eyes of him who sees all and knows all. And while we've done our best to justify and rationalize and whitewash. I say with Mike Bickle, Lord, shock me now. I don't want to stand before you and you tell me this is what was in your heart, Spuler. You never dealt with it. God, give us grace to deal with it today. This is red letter Christianity. I'm closing this morning with the words of the Apostle John in his first letter where he says, if we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves that we have passed from death to life. Do you know where most offense comes from? It comes from our brothers and sisters. 
I've been a Christian for many years. I've been a pastor for many years. And I know how Christians tick. Well, I'm one of them. And offense, bitterness, anger, Satan has a heyday in the church of Jesus Christ. But are we red-letter Christians if that's how we're going to live? What's the proof that we're really genuine? What's the proof that we've passed from death even to life? If we love, love forgives. Love doesn't cling to the little blacklist that I hold in my heart. John says, but a person who has no love is still dead. Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. And you know that a murderer doesn't have eternal life in them. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and our sisters. And that's the challenge that the Spirit of God wants to bring to all of our hearts. If we're red-letter Christians, it's not if you'd like to, if you really feel good about that person because, you know, you're on the same wavelength, you kind of click. But what about that brother or sister you don't click with? What about the one that rubs you the wrong way? What about the one that always seems to say things that get under your skin? Can we love them with the love of Jesus? I know we can't. I can't do that in myself. But that's what Christianity is all about. It's allowing Jesus by his spirit to come in. And this morning, all that the Lord is asking of us is will we acknowledge our sin? Will we open up our heart and say, Lord, I confess I've had a murderous heart. I don't want to mention politics, but there are so many Christians who have had murderous hearts toward President Trump, and now they have murderous hearts toward President Biden. And they've spoken raka over their lives how many times? That idiot, that, that, you name it. God says, you don't have a right. You have murder in your heart. May God's Spirit bring conviction and cleanse our hearts as we bow our heads in prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us today. Lord, we acknowledge that we need you. And we thank you today that your word is not comfortable. We don't need comfort. We need to see ourselves as you see us so that we could deal with ourselves, so that we could truly enter into the fullness of what it means to live in your kingdom, so that we could see, Lord, that you're requiring of us that our righteousness is not an external performance, but it's a righteousness of the heart where we have pure hearts, where we've not allowed anger and bitterness and hatred and animosity and hostility to fester and to simmer, God, that's just destroying the very fabric of our lives as your children. Convict us today, we pray.
and by the power of your spirit, the power of your blood, the power of your word, bring the transformation that comes when we say yes to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to close this morning by singing that prayer. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew.